Thanks a lot for your call, Ross, and well done for you, and hopefully you get your second one soon. But before we go to um, Dave, Mike and Denise... This is News Talk ZB Breaking News. Talk ZB breaking News. The Health Ministry has confirmed there are three COVID-19 cases in Waikato. All household contacts of the prisoner who earlier tested positive with the virus on Friday. Two of the three attended Mungatau. That was how News Talk ZB broke the news that COVID-19 had burst out beyond Auckland's borders last Sunday night. And after ZB rang the bell and newsreader Joe Gilfillan broke that news, Talkback host Miles Davis had some questions for him. What are they doing in Waikato? Well, he was he is he, presumably he was from there. And from he, there originally. Yeah. Mm, and and he was, so he must have gone home and broken the lockdown as well. Well, he then. was being monitored on an electronic bracelet of some kind. Ah. Yeah. Now, this was news which would have put everyone who heard it on edge, especially those in that area, and getting the main details right really mattered. But ZB listeners would have been thoroughly confused by what followed. Because was he the one that went to Middlemore? No, this was Friday. This, was this is one. Friday night's one. Because this is the problem now. Because we've got gang members being involved all over the place with it now, and they yeah. don't tend to do much what the government tell them to do, do really? they? Really? Oh, okay. <laughs> I hadn't realised that. No, there you go. <laughs> this case was nothing to do with Middlemore Hospital, or, so far as anyone knows, even now, any gang. But thankfully, Miles Davis's next talkback caller steered him away from any more riffing on half-remembered details of other recent but irrelevant cases. I don't want to talk about it. Let's change the subject, shall we? Best game of rugby in the weekend. At Monday's daily briefing, the Director-General of Health, Dr Ashley Bloomfield, told the media that the prisoner probably caught the virus from one of the people who transported him to his bail address south of Auckland. And the Prime Minister then said they knew exactly where the prisoner had been because they were GPS monitored and transported by one specified person directly home where they stayed. And that was reassuring until News Hub at 6 that night when reporter Michael Mora contradicted the official version of events. The Chief District Court judge told News Hub a single nominated family member was supposed to pick the prisoner up, but it turns out three people picked him up from jail and then the person who infected the prisoner ended up staying with him in the Waikato instead of returning to Level 4 in Auckland. And that's another lapse in our COVID management that Michael Mora has shed light on and hopefully has contributed to some tightening up that's made other lapses less likely. Now, coincidentally, actual gang members were also in the news that same day for breaking the Auckland Level 4 border, but these were people breaking back into the Level 4 zone with forbidden fried chicken and contraband coleslaw from Hamilton, which police then displayed on a cop car bonnet for pictures that they then supplied to the media. Uh, there's a lot of cash, there's a lot of chicken and there's a lot of coleslaw uh, that's all now been, cols- uh, that's now been confiscated. So those men will appear in court later this month uh, charged with breaching the health order. Mitch McCann played it pretty straight on News Hub at 6 that night, but while most of the media had a lot of fun with that, it was actually as serious as other recent reported breaches, which most of the media didn't find funny at all. Meanwhile, the news that the South Island, COVID-free for nearly a year now, would remain in Level 2, went down pretty badly with some blokes and business owners that News Hub spoke to, even though HOSPO businesses can now have 100 people on their premises. We should be at one, basically, you know, Two weeks ago, um, or earlier. It's a little bit perplexing um, to understand why we're still in level uh, two. It's outrageous. There is no justification. But the fact that COVID carriers from the North Island can still travel across the water by boat, and also by air, wasn't mentioned. 
And further complicating the alert level announcement on Monday was a level 4 environment for the Waikato area most likely affected by the freshly found cases among the family of the Mount Eden prisoner. Jacinda Ardern called that a bespoke lockdown, which was a new one. And the same day also saw the debut of another novelty, the MIQ lottery. But the hope that a fairer take-a-random-number method would ease offshore expats were dashed by the despair of the tens of thousands of people who dipped out in the unlucky dip. Number of users in queue ahead of you. 21,000. The Herald dubbed it MIQ. M-I-Q-U-E-U-E. While News Hub's Mike McRoberts had an even bleaker take. 30,000 Kiwis had to fight for just 3,000 rooms in the MIQ Hunger Games this morning. Nice line, but none of those wanting an MIQ slot was actually required to kill a rival to get one. And all these stark illustrations of just how much people want to travel ramped up pleading for a plan to open our borders before too long. And that prompted ZB host Nick Mills to ask his caller this. Does that mean that she is also, and the government is also giving up on elimination? I hope so. I quote frankly hope so. And Nick Mills was far from the only one in the media recently asking if the new combo of Delta and Level 3 in Auckland effectively means our elimination strategy has now been scrapped, even though those in charge firmly insisted it hasn't. Hayden Donnell took a look at the confusing claims and counterclaims about all that in the media and some of the strange semantics they deployed in doing so in this week's Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Brian Crump last Wednesday. If you missed it, it's on our page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. Last weekend here on Media Watch, we heard this aired on News Talk ZB's Drive Show last week. Right now, Emeritus Professor of Medicine at Auckland University, Des Gorman. Hi, Des. Good day, Heather. Is this lockdown working? No. And Professor Gorman, a vocal critic of the government's COVID-19 response so far, was back on ZB last Tuesday morning telling the host, Mike Hosking, there are other hazards to our health that are more serious than COVID. We have a mortal fear of dying of COVID, and yet we allow delayed cancer care, delayed surgery. And ZB's Mike Hosking also reckoned cancer care has suffered because of our fear of COVID. And uh, my fascination with how we've lost our marbles in this country when it's come to um, health matters in general. It's happened sort of to a greater or lesser degree all over the world, of course. But I note the Cancer Control Agency yesterday here were talking about nearly half of new cancer cases going to be missed. Why do we not care about that? Uh, why are we more gripped by whether anybody's in hospital with COVID and God forbid they end up on a ventilator and <gasps> God forbid they should die? Uh, because there are people dying of cancer, of course, and cancer that could have been treated but wouldn't have been and hasn't been. And somehow that's by the by. And Mike Hosking had some stark stats on this at hand for his listeners. 2020's nationwide lockdown, this was the first one, resulted in 1,031 fewer cases being recorded compared with the same period the year before. What do you reckon happened to those cases, eh? Uh, there was 47% fewer than the same period a year earlier. About 25,000 New Zealanders are diagnosed with cancer each year. About 9,000 of them die from it. And if you don't get it early, what do we know about cancer? You've got to get to it earlier. How do you get to it earlier? You actually get to see a doctor. That steep drop in cancer diagnoses recorded last year by the Cancer Control Agency, Te Aho or Te Kahu, sounded really worrying, especially as we've had an even longer lockdown this year and Auckland is still at level three now. 
And it's certainly true that cancer care backlogs were created over the lockdowns in 2020 at various DHBs, and those have been reported by the media. But what Mike Hosking didn't say there was that 47% drop covered just one month, April 2020, which was the first month ever in Level 4 when disruption to hospitals and patients' lives was at its peak. The Cancer Control Agency report which recorded that stat also compared the first four months of 2020 to the same time period in 2019, and it found that cancer registrations only decreased by about 7% in that time. And the same report said attendances for intravenous chemotherapy were down by just 3% in April 2020, and then stable over the rest of the 2020 lockdown period. And if you want a second opinion on all that, medical journal The Lancet published a longer assessment of the same data over a longer time frame late last year, and nine experts who wrote that concluded the impact of COVID-19 on cancer care in New Zealand had been largely mitigated by the end of 2020. Services returned to near baseline levels in subsequent months. Overall, there is no evidence of lingering disruption to cancer registration, diagnostic services or treatment following the early shutdown. So why then did Mike Hosking claim on News Talk ZB this week that the Cancer Control Agency, Te Ahu Otakahu, itself had said about half of cancer cases are going to be missed? Well, that was because he was misquoting a stuff story published the previous day headlined COVID and the hundreds of missing cancers which began like this. New Zealand will emerge from lockdown into a deadly unknown, with history showing nearly half of new cancer cases will have been missed. So those were Stuff's words and not those of the Cancer Control Agency. But Stuff and Mike Hosking are not the first to claim that hundreds of preventable or early deaths from cancer have been caused by COVID disruption so far and that there could be hundreds more coming up because of the current lockdown. But have they and will they? I asked the chief executive of Te Aho o Te Kahu, the Cancer Control Agency, Dr Diana Safeiti. During all of that time, during lockdown, um, cancer services have continued to operate. So cancer treatment has been, and that was true for the lockdown last year and, and also this year. The stuff story that had the dramatic headline, COVID and the hundreds of missed cancers. It does quote, for example, uh, Bowel Cancer New Zealand's medical advisor, Frank Fazell, saying uh, there could be a tidal wave of new cases. But is it? true that we will see a spike, a backlog because of, uh, you know, disruptions to people's normal patterns, including the COVID preparations that hospitals had to make? We didn't see much of a spike when we came out of the lockdown last time. There was some catch up, but it was over a few months and, and cancer services managed those. We wouldn't expect to see such a substantial drop off this time as we saw during the, the major lockdown last time. So when Mike Hosking was on the air on Newstalk ZB, he said, I note the Cancer Control Agency was yesterday talking about half of new cancer cases are going to be missed. That's something the agency or yourself ha- has actually never said. No, that that wouldn't be an accurate uh, representation of our view. So are you actually upset about that headline, COVID and the hundreds of missed cancers? Because that went out in newspapers all around the country. I'm concerned if people have the impression that cancer treatment has stopped as a result of COVID because that is absolutely not accurate. There were some deferred surgeries that were deferred for a short period. Uh, Cancer treatment services continued and those who needed cancer treatment got it. So it would be really concerning to me if people thought that that was not the case. I would expect to see um, a drop in number of cancer cases diagnosed, particularly in the Auckland region, but I'd be very surprised if it was as big as the first time round and I would expect to see a very rapid recovery. It was the chief executive of Te Ahu o Te Kahu, the cancer control agency, Dr Diana Safeti. Last Tuesday, Mike Hosking also told his listeners this. 
Australia's the one to watch, if not emulate. Of course, we should be leading Australia if we were, you know, really driven, but sadly we're not. We're cowed and run by fear. But one thing in Australia we wouldn't want to emulate right now is their cancer treatment disruption. Last week, Melbourne's main daily, The Age, reported life-saving treatments for cardiac and cancer patients are already being delayed as waiting lists blow out to record levels. And the COVID-19 Cancer Task Force Chair for Victoria told the paper that cancer surgeries were already being delayed because people were being treated for coronavirus. Meanwhile, in New South Wales, the Sydney Morning Herald recently reported that one out of every five people who have died of COVID in that state contracted it in the state's hospitals, and two cancer treatment centres are now exposure sites during the current outbreak. At 1pm last Thursday, media company NZME announced the audience for its talk station News Talk ZB and its main music network ZM had grown to unprecedented levels, according to the latest official audience research. And at exactly the same time, rival radio company MediaWorks said that it now had its highest ever audience share. 2.5 million people were tuning in nationwide every week to its networks. It's impressive and intimidating for rivals. And the following day, RNZ recorded a further slide in its listenership, the third fall in a row in these quarterly results, though engagement with its website and its digital offerings was way up. But it seems the commercial broadcasters are pretty worried about publicly owned public service RNZ because it does have a goal of reaching more and younger people. RNZ has a charter to govern its output that's enshrined in the law, the Radio New Zealand Amendment Act 2016 to be precise. That says that RNZ's charter should also be reviewed every five years by Parliament, and that last review changed the mandate to use all means of distribution, reflecting RNZ's increasing digital and online efforts. Now, that charter was due for review last April, but back then, the Broadcasting Minister Chris Farfoy tried to put the review on hold because he'd just appointed a group of people to draft a brand new charter for a brand new public media entity, the main plank of his government's strong public media programme. However, reviewing RNZ's charter is up to Parliament, not the Minister or RNZ, and Parliament's Economic Development, Science and Innovation Select Committee subsequently announced an inquiry into RNZ's charter review. Now back then, the committee's chair, Labour MP Jamie Strange, told Media Watch why. We decided that it was the right thing to do to open the inquiry into the review so that people could specifically focus on Radio New Zealand. And like that piece of work, you know, the report that we write will uh, no doubt feed into the work that the uh, Minister is doing. The next step in the Charter Review was a series of hearings in front of the committee. Sadly, all of them conducted remotely via the internet, with all the tech hiccups that entails. During the day, this, is a recording. this is a recording from a previous submitter, isn't But in another hearing earlier this month, the message from the group representing the commercial radio industry was loud and clear. RNZ might be straying out of its lane and into theirs. The government doesn't fund supermarkets, it doesn't fund petrol stations, it doesn't usually get into funding organisations unless there is a real public need. And we do see that there is, and we do see that the Charter outlines a lot of media content opportunities that Radio New Zealand needs to be producing that we couldn't. But what we're seeing is it's very easy to want to grow bigger and to probably behave in more commercial ways than we would see that a public broadcaster should. That was Jaina Ranguni, the Chief Executive of the Radio Broadcasters Association, which represents the mutual interests of the commercial radio broadcasters. Now, she also told MPs on the committee RNZ's doomed effort to launch a network targeting young people, especially in Auckland, was 
an attack. You know, the whole conversation around the youth radio network last year, which obviously didn't go ahead because of what happened with COVID, you know, what had happened with concert with the plan, we saw us a huge attack on, you know, potentially what commercial radio produces. The current chair of the Radio Broadcasters Association is Cam Wallace, who's the chief executive of MediaWorks, and he told the committee they wanted a charter to ring-fence RNZ scope and boundaries. Yep, it's great having a charter. Broadly, we support the charter, but what we support more is an active management of the charter and making sure that it's being followed. And when that was put to RNZ's chief executive at last Thursday's final hearing, Paul Thompson replied like this. It's, I think it's a question of choice, and it's not that we want to crowd anyone else out. but we well, That's think, what they think yeah. that you are doing. Well, of course they're going to say that. That's a consistent piece of feedback that they will give. And that was also the consistent message in the Radio Broadcasters Association's written submission to RNZ's Charter Review. RNZ was trying to grow its audience with the encouragement of the government and at the expense of their business. And attached to it was a 10-page lawyer's letter dating back to March 2020 at the height of the RNZ concert New Youth Network controversy, which claimed that RNZ and its management is not actually acting in regard of its own charter and to the detriment of the wider radio industry. So this week, I asked the Radio Broadcasters Association Chief Executive Jane Rangooney if her members are pulling in record-breaking radio audiences right now. What's the problem with RNZ? The reality for us is at the moment is Google and Facebook have changed the landscape. And if we lose audience to anybody, we lose revenue pretty much to those two competitors because they take about, I think there's 1.2, just over 1.2 billion now goes in the digital advertising market in New Zealand and Google and Facebook take the lion's share of that. So we're small in comparison and anything that impacts our revenue has huge impacts. So that's probably why we're, you know, super sensitive, um, perhaps in ways that we weren't 10 years ago. What actually is the content that RNZ's doing or that you think they might be planning that's a worry? I think what's concerning us most is the focus of many stakeholders in recent times that are judging Radio New Zealand's performance on audience growth, probably ahead of or on par with charter delivery. Um, Looking ahead to the future, there seem to be more areas of concern. Um, And things like the Triple J Youth Radio Project was a really clear example of this. Yeah, but that's now not happening, though, Jana, is it? I mean, that's uh, because of the political controversy surrounding it, um, and you don't want them in that market, right? But look, in terms of uh, news, for example, I mean, between the breakfast hours, 6 to 9 o'clock, there's morning report on publicly funded non-commercial RNZ. People have a choice. They can go to Magic Talk on MediaWorks and and hear the AM show or they can hear the Mike Hosking breakfast on ZB. So in the talk news area, there is choice. Why shouldn't it be the same in the music arena or uh, just in a station targeting young young people with um, talk as well as music? If you're looking at growing younger audiences, even the commercial operators aren't necessarily looking at going out to create more FM radio stations. The reality is most of us are looking at what we can do in the digital space, whether that's podcasting, whether that's streaming services. And we would certainly say that RNZ would look to do something in that space. And you say that the Triple J project is dead. Maybe it is. Our point is, is that we want to make sure that it is and that things like it, that would have been incredibly damaging to our industry, not only don't go ahead, but they're not what are considered in the first place. I mean, I think there was a real, I think, a naivety on a lot of people's part about the amount of impact that would have had on the sector and whether or not it was a good thing to do. Why would you seek to 
ensure the charter is rewritten to prevent them from reaching out to a younger audience that's part of the public and indeed, you know, pays for it in their taxes just like everybody else? We actually, I actually think the Charter is a good document. I think my concern is where the Charter isn't the focus of strategic decisions and growing audience is a greater focus for decision-making, and that's my concern, not the Charter. Well, well your Chair, sorry to interrupt, but your Chair, Cam Wallace, did say he wanted it to be a document that was kind of actively managed, so, you know, could then be held up and say, hang on a minute, you shouldn't be straying into this because, you know, the document says you shouldn't. No, I think it was more actually actively managed against the principles that are there now, is the point that Cam was trying to make that day. And no one's talking about not growing, because say if you, I mean, the reality is a lot of the potential for RNZ to grow, and I think RNZ should grow. I think there should be a public broadcaster that does have a future. But if you look at the market, I think there's a lot of content able to be provided in the digital space that RNZ is looking at doing, which I think is great, that will not compete directly with the commercial sector in terms of revenue. Of course, everything competes in terms of time, you know, because people have limited time. Over th- Well over 30% of under 30-year-olds don't listen to any FM or AM radio. And a lot of those fit into the category that you're talking about. They're not Pākehā. They are other groups in um, in New Zealand that I don't believe are well served. And there'd be a huge opportunity for a public broadcaster to look at you know, what would serve that market. But in, in your submission, you also argued that, uh, particularly prompted by that youth radio project or, or the possibility of it, you argued that it would actually breach RNZ's charter obligations and uh, it would actually not be in the wider public interest. Why? I think on the first point, you know, one of the key points that is in the charter is taking into account services that are already in the marketplace. And I think I think the principle of what public broadcasting is about is not to replicate what is available already in the commercial market just without commercial. I think it's actually about producing a lot more really valuable, often resource-intensive content that can't be provided by the commercial sector. And there's also the huge unknown in terms of the government's move towards merging RNZ and TVNZ. So we probably are more sensitive and concerned than we've been in the past. And I guess we're just trying to make sure that Radio New Zealand and the decision makers and governments are aware of our perspective and take note of our point of view. Well, you mentioned tensions there, and they would certainly be aware that you were unhappy about an RNZ ad campaign that ran. Some of the politicians might be a bit puzzled as to why you were so uptight about a campaign that's 18 months old and was just pointing out that RNZ exists and is a bit different. Yeah, the irony is the commercial operators don't even attack themselves the way that RNZ chose to attack the commercial market or one, you know, one particular market segment or competitor in general. So I think that's also what everybody found a little bit strange. So it's a little bit like rubbing salt in a very open wound to then go and have taxpayer funds used to try and take audience away from us. I mean, your submission to that charter review does include a 10-page lawyer's letter uh, kicked off, prompted by the prospect of a youth radio network cutting across your business as you see it. I mean, it's a very strong signal that if they try and broaden their reach to a class of a listener or an age group uh, that they don't currently have a lot of, and you would go legal and prevent them from doing it. Look, I think there's a lot of growth that RNZ could deliver in terms of younger audiences that don't compete as directly 
as that particular concept did. I think you want to be clear, this wasn't necessarily about a younger targeted piece of content. It was about a very specific music format, whereas there'd be other formats potentially and other content that RNZ could do attracting those audience that would not have the same impact on our industry. The challenge isn't about stopping a public media entity growing in terms of audiences. It's about growing at the expense of the commercial sector, which it doesn't need to do. That was Jaina Ranguni, Chief Executive of the Radio Broadcasters Association, representing the mutual interests of commercial radio companies, arguing for restrictions on RNZ's effort to attract new audiences during the parliamentary inquiry for the RNZ's Charter Review. As we mentioned earlier, the RBA and its members have also been consulted in the drafting of a charter for the new public media entity which the government is now planning. MediaWatch understands that that's nearly complete, though it won't be made public, just like the business case being prepared by consultants to go to Cabinet for consideration soon. And finally on Media Watch this weekend, ever since COVID hit, there's been no shortage of commentators pointing out that the Prime Minister and her ministers have had huge visibility in our media. By comparison, the opposition has struggled sometimes to get the oxygen of publicity. So it was a bit of a surprise that National Party leader Judith Collins turned down an agreed interview with NewsHub last Wednesday, as its political editor Tova O'Brien told viewers that night. You've got to remember this is all happening in the context of COVID. National has been fighting for air time, fighting for relevance, fighting to talk about what matters to New Zealanders. The same morning, Judith Collins also turned down RNZ's morning report for an interview because she said they wanted to ask her about three staffers that have left her office lately, and she said that was a private matter. Now, Last week, a press officer who left her side earlier, Janet Wilson, told the spin-off that Judith Collins was prone to paranoid storms and unfit to lead the party. And in her stuff column, Janet Wilson said she was trying to save the National Party, which she said now needs to provide the best ideas for real problems that communities face in this country in these complicated times. And on the Herald's new politics podcast on the tiles this week, political reporter Thomas Coughlin said some National MPs have been coming up with some of those. It gets quite emotional too when you have weeks when the opposition actually does do a good job, sticks to the message, actually raises like floats and quite good issues. I thought the MIQ policy last week was, was a fairly good one and it just sort of sinks like a stone and no one cares. Chris Bishop has been really on message. Yeah, He has been proposing solutions and critiquing the government where they deserve to be critiqued. And it hasn't worked yeah. for him and it hasn't worked for National. And, oh well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a contrast to the leader who has been frankly quite hysterical recently. And political reporters have seemed far more interested lately in that hysteria rather than the party's plan for MIQ or other policies. On Nine to Noon's regular Monday morning politics slot this week, host Catherine Ryan said there wouldn't actually be a change of leadership for a while yet. Even so, Catherine Ryan asked her pundit from the left last Monday, Shane Tapo, this question. Who would you pick? I, I would go with someone like uh, Nicola Wilkes and combined with uh, with Luxton. And interestingly enough, those two people were doing a, a, a Facebook um, talk last night on on housing, and uh, you know that's uh, in, in that area. Uh, Nicola Wilkes has been very successful. 
In late July, National actually released a fresh policy on housing and homelessness. It proposed emergency powers to speed up house building and release land, grants to local authorities for new dwellings, and limiting the RMA's oversight of district plans. This was the party's fifth policy put out under the banner of Demand the Debate, but the housing policy received far less media attention than the semantics of that particular slogan. In their Facebook Live session on housing last Sunday night, Nicola Willis floated things like rent-to-buy schemes modelled on overseas ones and community housing organisations to build and buy more homes. And there's some real innovation in terms of allowing people to pay rent that then goes towards a purchase, in terms of sharing ownership between them and another agency or even the government, long-term leases of land in which first-time buyers buy a property over time progressively pay back the lease. Interesting ideas, but none of them were mentioned anywhere in the media either, even in the week that fresh stats showed median house prices up by 25% nationwide in the past 12 months. This week, National Party's shadow treasurer Andrew Bailey also put out a six-point plan for supporting COVID-hit businesses in the week that the government was criticised for its amended assistance package. So when National Business Review political editor Brent Edwards spoke to Andrew Bailey about all that last Monday in a video chat... Andrew Bailey was grateful, but disappointed that there seemed to be so little space for stories about it, alongside all the ones about the pressure on his party leader. It is incredibly difficult to get the message out, and you really have to fight for a media space to get it out. But that's our job to do it, and we will persevere with it. Um, Look, there's clearly been a whole lot of media um, speculation on Judith Collins. I think it's pretty unhealthy why media... Um, There doesn't appear to be anything new in any of the stories. They seem a regurgitation of the same story. Yes, we are polling low in the polls, and that's something we have to address. Um, And we need to come out with good policies. Here I put out a six-point plan. I struggled to get it out, actually, in the media. Perhaps wisely, Andrew Bailey didn't go on to aggressively demand a debate about that. But there is something there for our editors to ponder. The ACT Party's leader, David Seymour, made the front page of the Dominion Post the same day by driving an ice cream van to Parliament to highlight the travails of small businesses. There's nothing new about opposition MPs being aggrieved that the media aren't amplifying their ideas or statements in the way that they would like. But while the media have repeatedly criticised the National Party under Judith Collins for failing to focus on things that matter, the same can be true of the media when her MPs actually do. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch on Nights with Brian Crump and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.